I'm Laura. Oh my God, Laura, I haven't seen you in so long. How are it's you? In ages. I know I'm pretty good. Oh good. Sarah. I'm Sarah. I live in Los Angeles. I'm agnostic. My Tinder profile suggests that I'm much more interesting than I am. <laughs> and I met Laura at Divinity School when we were in our graduate program together. Laura's actually doing something lucrative with it now. I am not. <laughs> I don't know that I'll call it lucrative, but <laughs> uh, that's generous, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> any, any amount of money you make is more than I am currently making off that degree. <laughs> um, I do not have a Tinder profile. I... I, I I got married before the age of online dating, I guess, really picked up. I mean, it was happening. I just felt like I, I cannot even imagine if I had to create a Tinder oh. profile. It would be the dorkiest Tinder profile. Oh, my God. You get, you get so many swipe rights. I don't know, man. I'd be like, I'd be like, I think I'd be like uh, looking for somebody to be my number one. And I would just be me in a Star Trek uniform. And if you get that joke, then I will date you. And if you don't, then I don't want to date you. <laughs> where, where all my Star Trek next gen fans at? Oh, but we digress. Yeah. Today, today, what are we talking about, Sarah, besides Tinder profiles? <laughs> Why would we talk about anything else? I don't, I don't know, Sarah. I, just, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I guess Tinder, I'm going to just shoehorn this into Tinder profiles. Do it. David and Bathsheba having sex. <laughs> but them having sex. I mean, was it sex? Okay, so David raping Bathsheba. Yeah. I'm going to get into that. Let's talk about it. Let's so, talk about it. Let's, but let's start with David. What's, yes. What's, yeah, what, who is, who is that, that guy? David was the king of Israel around 1000 BCE, which for those of you who don't know, is before Christ. What is it? Before no, Christ? Before the common era. See, BC, there's BC and AD. That's how it was before science. <laughs> before Christ, Anno Domini, meaning the, like after, I guess, Jesus died. Now it's BCE and CE, before common era and the common era. I was homeschooled. So was I, but I learned that. You know where I learned that? Divinity oh school? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I learned it in a public college. Public college. Oh, that's, that's what happened. I went to a private Southern Baptist college. That was my problem. Oh, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. They, they, they strained me out in terms of uh, the scientific terminologies. So. Yeah, I was way behind. Anyhow. Were you left behind? <laughs> Um, with my scientific knowledge and knowledge of all things pop culture, yes. Yes. Hard Same. yes. Same <laughs> So anyways, David was the king of Israel around 1000 BCE, before the common era. Nice. And he was the second Israelite king after Saul. You may know him from such tales as David, who slayed Goliath with his rock sling or the David who boned Bathsheba and it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing indeed. 
So, uh, so we find ourselves in the book of Second Samuel, chapter eleven, and David has wives and concubines and descendants galore, and he's just sitting pretty, kinging it up, and he's hang- he's just hanging out in that palace, uh, which is the tallest building um, in the city, and he's looking out of the city at that point, at least, and he's looking out over his city, and he sees Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, doing her ritual bathing, which would be on her roof, after her period is over, right? So she's just cleaning herself, and then he does the 1000 BCE version of Facebook stalking by asking around and discovers that she's married to a man named Uriah, who's a Hittite, henceforth to be known as Uriah the Hittite, who is one of his soldiers in the army. Yeah. So a couple of things that I really want to point out in this image of him finding Bathsheba. I'd really like to think of him like creating binoculars with his hands like kids do to zoom in on her her boobs (laughs) while she's taking this very, very sexy period bath. And also like, let's be honest, she's taking a bath after her period. So there's just like caked on blood, just probably everywhere. That's just gross, you know, like... That's not a sexy bath. I'm just saying. And also, like, her husband is Uriah, who was not just a soldier, but he was also, like, very well known for being an honorable leader. He wouldn't break the laws or acquiesce to favoritism over his soldiers. But David doesn't give a shit about any of that. This story has long bothered me for a lot of reasons. Um, I feel like I grew up with this notion that Bathsheba gets all the blame and is labeled a temptress in this story for David looking at her and being tempted by her. And that's not even what the text says, right? The text doesn't even blame her. So what gives church, at least the churches I grew up in, um, not my current church, but she's just taken, thanks current church. um, She just, she's just taken a bath to wash off her caked on period blood because they didn't have tampons back then. They didn't Mm -hmm. have diva cups. You know what they had, Sarah? They had, I don't even know what they had. They probably had like rags. I don't know. They probably had sheep's wool. I was what I would imagine. <laughs> they just put a, they just like sat on a sheep for a week straight. <laughs> so basically Bathsheba was riding a sheep for about a week or so. And then they shear the sheep and that's how they get dyed red cloth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's science. It's I science. you know what? I if you want to learn science, you come to Bible bitches. If any of you are wearing red right now, thank a woman. Thanks a woman that bled on your shirt or skirt or dress or tie. (laughs) This is going off the rails and I'm here for it. I like it. I like it. How many, how many, you know, how many, what's the over under on the amount of period jokes we're going to do on this one? (laughs) Oh my God. We've got to do at least 75. Anyways. um, (laughs) Yeah. The, you know, the story we're, we're making jokes, but I mean, in, when I was a kid, Bathsheba was, not portrayed in a kind light at all. She was the temptress. You're right. She was the temptress. She was this slutty woman who wasn't being modest with her body. And therefore this man couldn't resist his urges. And she, she was forced into a situation that she didn't want to be in because of it, because she was acting in a promiscuous quote unquote, or like seductress kind of way. Yeah, and the more you get into the story, the more you see that that's just dumb. Like, it's just a dumb way. Like, for the church to have blamed her just kind of shows the misogyny of the culture that in which the church is rooted. 
so we keep going and we see that the king, David, um, sends his messengers to get her, a.k.a. he sends his boner guards to grab her and brings her to the palace. And how is consent possible when that happens? It isn't. It isn't at all. That's the answer. When you send guards to grab a woman that you've seen from your palace, that is not consent. But like that isn't even in the conversation, even in the literature at the time, because the most likely men who wrote this weren't talking about consent in 1000 BCE, right? But anyway, um, so he rapes her, Bathsheba gets pregnant, and after this, David sends for Uriah, who is clearly honorable because he refuses to eat and drink while his soldiers sleep in the field during the festival of booze slash Sukkot, which sidebar is a harvest festival that commemorates the 40 years the Israelites spent in the desert. So they're kind of stopping from battle, having this um, kind of time of, of rest and celebration, but Uriah is choosing to spend this with his soldiers instead of going home and enjoying the company of his wife. So after the festival, Uriah eats and drinks with David, but David's trying to convince him to go spend the night with Bathsheba because David knows that Bathsheba's pregnant. So he's like, uh, we gotta get these two to sleep together because otherwise I'm in trouble. But Uriah doesn't do this because he's like, I'm not going to leave my soldiers to go home and, and see my wife if none of them can see their wives. So he is like, he goes back to, you know, Uriah goes back to the soldiers and then David decides to have him killed. Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But just so you guys know, it's not the Festival of Booze. That sounds a lot more fun. It's the Festival of Booths. Yes, Booths. Booths. Um, so it's not like these soldiers are just like getting drunk and like partying. <laughs> this is like a serious deal. Um, this is like, and this must be my Southern accent. It's, it, it does, it's yes. Booths, not festival of booze, which is basically any uh, Southern festival you're yeah. ever going to go to. <laughs> <laughs> and any good festival anyway. Mm. So yeah. So what's happening here, just to recap, David sees Bathsheba on the roof. I feel like we've established that. And he has his guards go and sort of just, like, take her to him. He rapes Bathsheba and sends her husband Uriah to the front lines to die. So what's happening here is that he writes a letter to the general of his army. His name is Joab. He writes a letter to the general Joab saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. So David is essentially, like, ordering a hit on Uriah. He sends him to the front during the big battle that Israel is fighting, and therefore Uriah is predictably killed. So then, um, so then Bathsheba finds out that Uriah is dead and laments. After her mourning period, David brings her to the house to become his eighth wife. Classy move, David. So classy. Um, and now I'm laughing at folks who point to the Bible to say that marriage should be between one man and one woman because uh, David, one of the most famous dudes in the Bible, has eight wives. Um, so he's basically got a harem because on top of that, he's got concubines. So, Yeah, but you know that like conservative Christians are still justifying this because it's between a man and a woman. Therefore, it's about procreation and not about like actual love. It's between a man and a woman and a Another woman and another woman and another woman and another and woman. women. So many women. And like and all against just, their consent. How did we get here? I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, back to, back to the text at back hand. To, David, like he's not so sneaky. 
as he would like to believe he is. He's going to get his comeuppance. And this is in the text, this is where we get a new character in the story, the prophet Nathan. The biblical writers weren't so great about following a plot line. So characters just kind of like pop in and pop out. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, uh, it begins with the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, which foreshadows the business the prophet Nathan is about to serve David. Nathan tells David a parable about a rich man with tons of sheep stealing one sheep a poor man has. David becomes angry and says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And in a LeBron style slam dunk move, Nathan says, you are that man. Ha ha, gotcha. That part was not what he said. But I feel like we can infer that, right? Yeah. That Nathan is basically saying that, Dash, that David stole Bathsheba, who is the lamb in the story. And then Nathan, who, by the way, in Hebrew, Nathan means gift. I don't know that David's feeling that way right now. But. <laughs> um, then Nathan declares that God says the child Bathsheba is pregnant. And, or the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with will die. And David's wives will be taken from him and the neighbor will sleep with them before his eyes and the sword will never leave David's house, meaning that he will have perpetual war. All of this is punishment, basically. That, you know, it's really fucked up. God's justice in this story is pretty fucked up. Um, so God's justice in this story originally looks good, like, but it ends up that God is kind of fucked up in this. He's tricking David into damning himself. And then his wives are brought in as collateral damage and perpetual war will harm the people, not just David. So what's going on here is this, this thing that Nathan is prophesying is going to not just hurt David, but also David's wives and the whole of his city. Yeah. I like the, I like the first part, the part where he kind of tricks David into like, you know, damning himself. Like that part's kind of cool. But then it gets, like, super messed up. I feel like it turns south whenever it's like, oh, and then all these other people you know are going to get, like, digged over. And it's like, well, that's not fair. Yeah. That's not super fair, right? And uh, Bathsheba's child does die when it's only seven days old. And after a period of mourning, David and Bathsheba bear another child. And this is Solomon, who goes on to be the wealthiest and wisest king of Israel. He's, pretty, he's cool people. We'll, we'll have to do something on him later on. So David's son Absalom, which is his firstborn son, which should technically be the one to inherit the throne, he wars with David after David's other son, Amnon, rapes his sister Tamar, and Absalom ends up sleeping with 10 of his father's concubines in public. So first of all, great story. I love the idea that like this son is like, fuck you, dad. I'm going to fuck 10 of your concubines just in front of everyone in the town square. (laughs) Also like props to him for having the stamina. Oh my God. Get it, dude. Um, But what really, what we need to get to here is that the women in David's life become commodities or they are commodities. They are viewed as commodities and they become collateral damage because of toxic masculinity in David's life story. Toxic masky. Toxic masky. <laughs> the worst masky. 
yeah, I should just warn our listeners that this time I decided to drink absinthe instead of bourbon. <laughs> so yeah. I'm a little silly tonight. I, re- I want to encourage this kind of silliness. Good. Oh. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> I have a question, and I don't know that we have an answer, but I would like to posit a question. Just like, did, like, were the concubines, I want to know, like, I, that seems like really kind of fucked up and like that he's using women. But like, I also want to be like, were they like, fuck you, David? Like, you know, I were the concubines like, you know what? I hate you so much. I'm going to like do this public act of like screwing you over, David. Like, how did that go down? I just have questions. Like, was it that Absalom took them against their will and he raped 10 of the father's concubines? Were they held down? Were the father's concubines like, I hate, I hate that. Fucker yeah. David. Did he offer them something? Was he like, if you yeah. come with me, then, you know, you get, you get, you get one Amazon Prime. <laughs> Amazon Prime. They're like, what is that? <laughs> you get free shipping. He's like, if you can live for another like 3,000 years, it's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I'll give you my HBO Go password and you can binge watch Game of Thrones. It's great. It'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> right. like, what is Game like, of Thrones? And he's like, you'll see. <laughs> you'll see. We're basically living it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no dragons, but basically everything else is happening. I mean, there's um, a Leviathan. <laughs> right. We'll have to do one on that. Yeah. Dinosaurs in the Bible? Question mark. <laughs> all right. So David, after after all this nonsense goes down with Absalom and Amnon and the warring between the sons, David eventually names Solomon as his successor on his deathbed. After persuasion by the prophet Nathan and his wife Bathsheba, when they see a usurper named Adonijah trying to take over. And it seems like this is some sort of cosmic justice, right? That the child by Bathsheba, who was one of the youngest ones, is going to be the one that ends up getting the throne. But just like in the Sarah and Hagar story, justice here is only seen by the son of the woman who was wronged with women's suffering and pain being the casualties of war. So justice seen through the male line. And where's Bathsheba's voice in this? I mean, her voice is with all of the other Old Testament women's voices, which is nowhere. I mean, I remember having Old Testament scholar uh, Phyllis Tribble um, in class, and she told the story where she initially thought these women uh, should be ignored, but a woman came up to her after a reading of one of these stories stating something like, uh, I feel like the story of violence against me being in the Bible has given me a voice and I'm not alone. Like she could read a story uh, that approached her level of trauma, right? Mm. And it, so it, it made her know she's not alone. So perhaps there is a value in the narrative here, but we have to be careful with the interpretation or else we blame the victim here being Bathsheba. I don't know though. I mean, whatever works for an individual that's great but if we began at a place where the overarching cultural narrative wasn't that women are collateral that women aren't a commodity would there be as much violence would this text be so meaningful like i mean i don't i don't know i i just i'm skeptical of the way that these texts have been interpreted throughout the years by all different 
iterations of Christianity and the way that that has influenced culture and culture has influenced it. And they're so intertwined that I don't even know, but it just seems like a tragedy that, that this is a narrative that women can relate to and want to hear more of because they can relate to it. But I think it's all kind of like how, how the framework for how it's interpreted, right? So like, let's say you're in a church that says you're married to this person like kind of like what we were talking about in our episode was it last week or the week before where we talked about John Piper saying you should stay with your husband even if he's abusing you right yeah, yeah. and you're twisting some texts and saying like you know you're going to be a more honorable wife for staying with a husband you know even if he's like bashing the shit out of you right like that's how you get your 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 value as a woman right versus if you are in a church that maybe is more pastoral progressive, like empowering of women's rights would say, you know, how do you view the story? It would give agency to the person who's reading it and empower that. And if they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds like my story, right? Because, and then they're like, okay, well, well, let's process that together because that's way more therapeutic. You know, as a person who's a therapist and a minister, like, I think I trust people in a, in a, in a democratic setting with reading the text and being able to kind of talk about it. Right. And, and in, and in other settings where it's extremely hierarchical and you're having the meaning shoved down your throat, it gets dangerous, right? Because you're being force fed a narrative versus if you're in a setting where a bunch of women are talking about a particular text, okay, well, does this resonate with you? Does it not? Like, and how would it, and how is it empowering and how is it not empowering? One woman might be like, I never want to read this shit again. And the other one might be like, oh my gosh, this happened to me. And it's helping me find voice for how I can talk about and process my trauma. Yeah. I mean, it's so individualistic. It really is. And, and, and so from my perspective, one of the big reasons why I left the church is because there were so many narratives that I didn't want to dictate my life. I love the Bible insofar as that it's just like a, it's just full of fascinating stories, but I don't want those stories to be like a part of my life that I have to weave into my moral understanding, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. And like, and like, obviously like other people do, and I'm not opposed to that, but I am skeptical of how ingrained sexism is in our culture, how ingrained, like to the point where we don't even see it. And these kinds of texts reiterate that. These kinds of texts, the narratives that that are often interpreted, I mean, like is, is what is is what is ingrained. It is what is told. What Phyllis Shrivel says is radical. It's still radical in the Christian church. And like, that's a great reading and if you have access to it, that's awesome. But that's not what's being like offered to most people. Yeah, I certainly think the church at large has a lot of work to do with that. But I think, you know, there was something, the first thing you said, you said it's so individualistic. I think that the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a slight argument for the progressive church. And I like, really want to be careful with that, that not for church in general, but the progressive church, that progressive and moderate churches have the ability to allow people to have their own interpretations of things, but still discuss it in community. Because I think there needs to be that tension of individual 
and communal balance. What, what I don't want to have happen is a woman who feels very isolated that reads a text, a problematic text like this, and internalizes it and says, well, if I just stick with it in this shitty relationship, then my worth will come through a, a child that I have, right? That I don't deserve redemption. I don't deserve my life being redeemed in terms of me leaving this guy and I get to live my best life, right? I get to be a scientist or a whatever, right? I, I can leave and do that, right? That's why I'm kind of advocating for let's read this in a, in a community because if I were let's say I was a minister in a church and there was a woman who was in an abusive relationship that was maybe saying some things in that class that were problematic. I could take her aside and be like, what's going on here? Right. Versus this person kind of reading it in, in solitude. Then I can kind of do a quick assessment with her, you know, afterwards and be like, what's going on here? Tell me about, you know, and then as a minister, I could kind of see, is this woman in an abusive relationship? And how, how can I help? How can I provide this woman with the tools that she could maybe use to empower herself to get out of that relationship? So, so like, that's why I want to balance that whole thing with, there is an individualistic way of like, yes, you should read it and interpret it on your own. But I also really like the idea of us being in a community where we can watch each other's backs because what's really scary to me is women who are completely isolated outside of a church or a community or whatever and they're completely on their own. That's super scary. And that kind of isolation and lack of community has led to innumerable injustices. And it's led to things that have become status quo because nobody spoke up in the beginning and it just became such a no big deal. It just happened right? to everybody. So question about that. Yeah. If, if you guys were reading this in a different kind of text, if this was just a book that you guys were reading, do you think it would have had the same impact on the women that we're talking about? Are you asking the listeners or like to answer that or me? Uh, both. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of approaching this as like a thing that is freeing for me about being agnostic is that I don't feel beholden to these texts as something that I have to examine in a sort of like a moral fundamental self kind of way. They're just like mm -hmm. things that I can, I can read and I can be like, that's an interesting story and I can take what I want from that, but it doesn't have to be something that I have to like shoehorn into being part of myself. Like just Bible as literature kind of thing. Yeah, just Bible as yeah. literature. And I don't want to degrade the Bible. And and I also want to elevate literature that there are like so many good stories or so many good really? things to learn from both. But as I was growing up, what the Bible was saying was truth. And we had to follow it explicitly. And there was no question in it. And that idea, that narrative, to me was problematic. And so I'm wondering if for other people, if it would be freeing for them, if that narrative was equally as sort of like binding. And I think that's where, um, oh my gosh, I just want to like give a shout out to Jill Crenshaw right now, um, who was a oh. professor of ours at Wake Div, where oh she God. talked about like leaning into the tension, right? Like she was all about like the tension and the chaos. And I think there is a, um, a tension and a chaos here because like you you have on the one end, like on the extreme end, you think the Bible is completely inerrant, right? And it is and completely infallible. And it was written by God who took over people and like wrote through them, right? 
And then on the other complete other side of it, it's just a book. Right. And I think, I don't know. It can never be just a book. It's been so enculturally, like it's so interwoven into philosophy, into modern culture. It's like such a part of who we are in Western society that I don't know that it can be just a book. Yeah. I don't, I, I think, so I would be like, I, I don't, think it's inerrant at all. I think it's, I think it's one of those things where a lot of people were thoughtfully grappling with what do we think about God and wrote some books about it. it. You know, it was written over different eras by different people. And that's why it contradicts itself. I believe it contradicts itself. And that's, that's probably on the super progressive end of, of Christianity. And I think on the you know, on on your end saying like, look, it's ingrained in culture. Like regardless of if it's, you know, like it's not, it's not an error and it's not like written by God, but it's culturally relevant, right? That Mm -hmm. we have to know what it says in order to be able to engage it in culture. I think what you're saying about it being that you feel free from it, right? That you feel free from it. It doesn't have to define your narrative. What I would want, I think, regardless of if you are, if you say that you are a Christian or not a Christian or whatever, is that folks feel free to use their own narrative to define who they are. Because I believe, because, you know, here's where, here's where we might kind of differ, is that I think God's story is in all of our stories. And so for me, I would want a person to be able to know that God didn't just stop and first century CE, if you have endured some shit and you survived it or whatever, that I would want to know how you got through it. And like, where, where is the divine in your story? Because every person I believe is created in God's image. And I want to know where you get your strength, how you survived. And for me, while I still connect that to the Bible, I completely get why people don't. I want those questions. I want to hear the answers to those questions to you. But I I just, I feel like the narratives that I've heard from people in like this kind of biblical text seem to me kind of a tragedy. We're wrestling, we're wrestling with the tough questions here, Sarah. We <laughs> do. It's how we roll. Yeah, it let's is, talk uh, about how we can reach us. If you found yourself here and you're like, ah, who am I? Um, you can find us on SoundCloud. Just search Bible Bitches SoundCloud on the Googles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Yeah, and also, you guys, we're going to be hanging around at um, Wild Goose. So <gasps> definitely us. come find us. We would love to talk to you. Um, yes, the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. And it's July, what, 12th through the 15th? It's July 12th through the 15th. You can find us at The Goose. And um, we also are planning on doing a crossover podcast with Homebrew yeah. Christianity. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Soon and soon. Um, and we will probably be hanging out with them at The Wild Goose. So if you are a fan of one or both or either, oh my God, you need to just book those tickets. Just yeah. come see us. Yeah. Come see us. We're, we're going to have some swag in the form of t-shirts and pins and things like that. Anyways, you can also contact us at Bible Bitches on Twitter. You can look us up on our Bible Bitches fan page on Facebook. Obviously, our Gmail account, which is Bible Bitches, B-E-T-C-H-E-S. And of course, we'd love to give a big thanks to Engage Gaze for hosting our website and Aaron Doodles, who's Aaron Smith. You can see him on Twitter at Aaron Doodles. 
and Yo Eves uh, at Yo Eves, which is Missy. And, sh- and Miss Eves, who does our uh, intro outro music, um, she's about to drop a new album. It's hot. <laughs> when is that coming out? Soon. She just filmed a new music video, um, which is awesome. She does open calls and she encourages all body types, all shapes, um, all ethnicities. And this is why I love Missy. Yeah. And she's also just like chill and super funny. Like she's cool. I, so, um, so yeah. And also yeah. Aaron Doodles has some like really funny shit on his, uh, on his page. You need to follow him. Like he is hilarious cartoonist. So, yeah. um, so follow all these peeps yeah. and, we, and we will catch you on the flip side. We, hopefully we'll see you at, um, Wild Goose. And if not, we will see you next time. We'll, we'll be talking about the Legion getting exercised. Bye you guys. <laughs> The power of Christ compels you!